Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast, Breathe Underwater. I am your host, April Salazar. I am Whitney Waddell. And today we are so very excited to welcome Collier Landry with us. When he was just 11 years old, he witnessed his father murder his mother in the early morning hours of New Year's Eve. Nobody believed him. He gathered evidence against his father, leading the police to discover her buried body. And it was ultimately his testimony who put his father behind jail. Now, after having his story featured on Forensic Files, he's channeled his trauma into filmmaking and podcasting. He's gained a widespread recognition as the creator and subject of A Murder in Mansfield, a film that has been directed by the two-time Oscar winner, Barbara Koppel. And now every single week, he shares his unique perspective on surviving true crime and trauma, overcoming adversity, and moving on. So, I mean, it just really aligns with what we're doing, and we are so happy to welcome you today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I mean, wow. I know you share your story a lot. I actually just listened to your last... Um, uh, what was it? Trauma, a hangover, <laughs> your hangover podcast about the trauma hangover. Yeah. Trauma hangover. Yes. It's been quite a while since I've had a real hangover. So, <laughs> but it would be very clear. <laughs> right. So, right. Exactly. The trauma hangover, which basically, and I think that Whitney and I can attest to this is just kind of sharing this story and reliving it so much, even though it is cathartic in some ways, it also is a little bit traumatizing to relive it. And I think that you became overwhelmed doing that. And I appreciate that you still continue to do so, so that we can find a, that golden nugget for everybody else who's going through something. I gave a little bit of information about your story, but I would really like to have you share what happened when you were 11. Give us, give us that story. Well, it's an interesting one, that's for sure. I mean, um, <laughs> well, I, I, but I, I do want to go back just a moment to your point, the about the trauma hangover. Since we were, since you, we led with that, I love sharing my story, and I, I do not love that it is my story to share, but I do love sharing it because of the impact that it has on others. And I think in that particular episode. I was discussing, as I had said, with the with fellow survivors that I am involved with in different groups and, and support groups and things of that nature. And so, and most of these survivors are from violent true crime. So we were all talking and I said, I don't ever realize if I get triggered or whatever, but I had had a film crew in town. It was like three or four days of just dealing with them. And then I had another woman that I was talking to who was, whose brother was murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer. And I had my friend Tara Newell, who I was doing doing this other podcast with called Survivor Squad. And we mm -hmm. brought 30 survivors, a group of them together for this big sort of true crime meetup thing. So I think by the end of that four-day period, I just I was just kind of lethargic and just didn't feel good. And then I was like, oh my God, I have a trauma hangover. And I don't think mm -hmm. a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people are <clears throat> are really aware of those things because my sort of story and my experience. I was very, I drew a lot of passion from the fact that I felt like people looked at violent crime and they would look at the fact that, okay, the bad guy goes to jail, the victim is dead, the state gets its restitution, the gavel hits, and we say next, right? And we never really examined the true consequences of violence. 
whether that impact is on uh, the family of, of the victims, it, the community as a whole, the friends, the ancillary victims. Uh, we never looked at the broader scope of, of those things. So for me, I, I, that really was the impetus for sharing my story and putting it out there and looking at these situations, how, how they impact us societally. Now, what, with my story in particular, how that all started <laughs> was when I was 11 years old. And I grew up in what I thought was a normal family, but I would say that by normal, it was normal to me in a lot of ways. But I think that like many kids, I grew up with a lot of emotional and physical abuse, right? Okay. And, and that was from, that was from your parents. That was from my father specifically, father. Okay. my, my father. And he was not only abusive to myself, but also my mother as well. And very violent temper. He was apoplectic. Mm. He could just have a you know a rage fit just come on in the blink of an eye. So as I look back on it, I kind of was conditioned at an early age in that fight, flight, or fawn sort mm -hmm. of phase. And for me, it was fawn, right? So where I'm always trying to appease, tiptoe around. Something might set daddy off. And it's interesting because when I share my story, a lot of people go, Oh, is your dad like an alcoholic? And I was like, no. <laughs> the thing is, is my, my father, my father didn't, at least as far as I ever knew, did not have a substance abuse problem at all. So his behavior was just that he was kind of an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and probably I, undiagnosed and he, schizophrenic also. Or, or, you know, psychopath for sure. And I think that, so for me, uh, I grew up what I considered normal, but like, oh, daddy might go off the rails. And I spent the majority of my time with my mother. And I think I even said in court, I spent 99% of my time with my father, 1% of the time with my mother. Now I was being a bit hyperbolic at the time, but I would say probably at least 90% of the time I was with my mother because my mother was my constant companion. She was as a mother and son relationship. I was an only child. So mm -hmm. my mother was very protective over me. And the, the fact that my father was this sort of loose cannon abusive type of individual who you didn't know where you were going to get Jekyll or Hyde. Uh, I, you know, she was my protector, right? And ultimately I hers in a lot of ways. So, so really quickly, was, I just want to ask your, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with your story, your father held a respectable position in society, in the community. Or was well, he just father, kind of a, well, my father was a, my father was a doctor. Yeah. So okay, I guess so we would yes. say that's a respectable position i don't think that many of his peers and colleagues respected him because his personal life which i'm about ready to get into was so messy okay and that was because my father was a chronic womanizer and i didn't really become aware of it until much later on in life and i didn't even become fully aware of it until after the murder and i grew it was a teenager and started yeah. discovering all these things and even into adulthood so for me this all sort of started when I was 11 in 1989. And my father had taken me on a on like a, a Memorial Day party. And he had introduced me to this woman. And it was a really fun event that day. I didn't go a lot with my father. I would go to like see patients with him or we would go on ski trips occasionally. But I didn't spend a lot of time with him. So he took me to this like party, this barbecue party. It was something I had never been around. Most of my parents' friends were 
professional people we weren't like doing a hog roast and people drinking beer and 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 riding on quads and playing volleyball in the backyard that was not my speed uh but i had a lot of fun and i noticed at the end of that at that party i turned around i was walking around the lake with this girl that was my age and you were skipping stones and whatever and i look back and my father has his arm around this woman and on the drive back I asked my father, I said, who was that? And he said that she was a patient and she was terminally ill. Hmm. I said, oh, okay. So I didn't really think much of it. And it wasn't until Father's Day, which was a month later, that I went with my father to his office to pick up some paperwork. And then he took me, you know, this is in the late 80s, so suntans were all the rage. So he took me to the tanning salon and who met us but this woman, the same woman. And she had two radio-controlled cars, and she was very excited to give us these radio-controlled cars. And, of course, I'm 11 years old, so I'm like, oh, I got a car. So I'm playing with a radio-controlled car, and I look over, and I see a, a, a ring on this woman's hand. And I say, oh. And it was a very unique, very unique ring. It was a diamond slide ring. I'd never seen a ring like that before, and I, but I, it looked like my mother's ring. And I said, oh, my mommy has a ring like that. And she just kind of giggled and looked at my father and I thought, okay, this is weird. And so I'm playing with a radio control car and I look up and they're like full on making out. And so at that point, he wasn't hiding his physical attraction to her at all. No. And I was like, okay, I've never seen this before. I've never even seen my parents make out. I, I've seen it in movies. You know, I was 11, right? And it's not like I was, you know, it's not like today's kids that are. <laughs> you look anything up on the internet that doesn't Absolutely. exist right yeah. so you'd have to sneak to watch a rated r sneak a playboy <laughs> to see anything risque right so i uh i get in the car and my dad says to me he goes you know please don't tell i want you to tell your mother that i took you to the office i gave you the radio control cars as a gift for um getting good grades this this year and i was like Okay. I, I, he just asked me to lie to my mother. I never lied to my mother before. So I went home and obviously I'm in fear of my father because my father, like I said, had, was very apoplectic and, and could, you know, turn on the rage, drop a hat. So of course I don't, of course I say yes to my father. Like I'm going to not say anything to my mother, but I'm scared. It, it, I mean, I'm saying it because I'm scared, but I'm also like scared of my mom too, because my mom was very strict. I don't want to lie to her and I don't like being in the middle of something, but I did. And later on that night, I got really sick. And it wasn't until the next day that, as we'd all gone out to dinner for Father's Day and everything like that, and it wasn't until the next day I was playing with the radio control car in the driveway, and I'm so overcome with guilt. Mm. And I go inside, and I tell my mother, I say, Mommy, I think Daddy is having an affair. And then mm. I start to tell her everything, how he asked me to lie, how the woman had this ring on that looked just like hers. And I was, and I thought it was really uncanny. I was like, how many people have this ring mommy and all this stuff. And, and I, I, my mother says, you know, she thanks me for telling her the truth. She was up. She was upset that I lied to her, but she understood why I did it. And she said, thank you for coming clean. She goes in, she mm -hmm. makes a phone call. And of course I hear her screaming, right. Right. On the phone. And, Unbeknownst to me, my mother already knew about this woman. My mother also knew that this woman was pregnant. Oh. My mother knew about all of my father's affairs. And 
my father had multiple girlfriends simultaneously, mind you, while he's married to my mother. Interesting. And always with these different stories and these different cover-ups. And, I mean, just just craziness. And what I discover, late, and this is, I discover this much later, like after she's dead, after the murder, mm. uh, after the trial, is that my mother and him had a had an agreement. And that agreement was, Jack, you can do whatever the hell you want. Just don't involve our son. Hmm. And once my father crossed that line in the sand, my mother was like, no, that's it. And so she proceeded to file for divorce from my father. And the next six months were really ugly. So this is June, 1989. Hmm. And the next six months are really ugly. And it wasn't until the end of November that I could just see, you know, my father was just very aggressive and just just nasty to both of us. And mm -hmm. he's saying things to me like, I'm, I'm going to make sure that you go to privates or you go to public school with all the poor kids. I'm going to make sure your mommy's working at McDonald's. You're not going to have any money for college. I'm going to make mm -hmm. sure you suffer. You know, he's t telling me all of this to his, quote, son that he loves, right? My father was a doctor and he was in private practice. He was getting ready to start a new practice in another state. He had bought a house and he was going to move in with his girlfriend who was pregnant. My father had won. Like my mother was so downtrodden from the divorce. Like she, he cut off all her money and everything. So she didn't have access to like a, a proper lawyer. And, you know, the, 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 the wild thing is, is that my mother ran my father's books for his practice. My mother put my father through medical school. I ultimately found out. And he's mm. the whole reason he, he even became a doctor. But of course, like any narcissistic man, it's all about him. So he was determined to destroy our family and destroy me and my mother. And my mother, who was really downtrodden, this is the end of November. And she says to me, Collier, I want you to know that I would never leave you. And I said, okay, mommy, what do you mean by that? And she said, if I ever disappear, I want you to know that your father probably had me killed. And oh. your father has mafia connections and your father has this and that. Because we were, we were from Philadelphia. We were living in this small town in Ohio. I was Italian-Irish. And my mom was alluding to these like mafia ties and things of that nature. I don't know if there's any truth to that to this day. I, you know, I don't know. But I could see the sincere like fear in her mm -hmm. eyes right and her just her tone of voice and i could just see how upset she was and i knew that she was going through it with my father because he was treating me horribly as well so the christmas holidays come and and my grandmother who is my father's mother was extremely close to my mother okay. and she's supposed to come for christmas she doesn't come for christmas but she does come for new year's and that night is uh the night of New Year's Eve, 1989, and I kiss my, you know, my grandmother goodnight. I kiss my mother goodnight. I say, mm. I'll see you in the morning. And I wake up at three, around 3.18 a.m. to a scream, and then I hear two loud thuds. It sounded mm. like a body hitting a wall. They were about 60 seconds apart. I hear some muttering. It sounds like my father's voice. And then I hear these footsteps I count them as they go down the hallway and I'm sitting there and I'm just frozen and I am staring at my clock on the wall, my Batman clock. And I can see, I always slept with my door open and the, I count the footsteps and they stop literally in the doorway and I can see them out of my peripheral vision. And something is telling me, don't look up, whatever you do, don't look up. So the footsteps leave. The, the feet leave 
and I eventually go back to sleep. I don't know how. I go back to sleep. I wake up the next morning. You know, a few hours later, I run straight to my mother's room. I start rummaging through the sheets, looking for blood, looking for anything I can find, uh, evidence, whatever. The bed is a mess in a state of disarray. I come downstairs. I say to my father, who's sitting on the couch. He had just taken a shower. He's got a towel wrapped around his waist. He's watching CNN. I said, where is my mother? He doesn't respond. I say, where is my mother? And he looks at me and he goes, well, Collier, mommy took a little vacation. And I knew at that moment that it was game on. And I knew at the very least my father had done something to her. I don't know if he 100% has murdered her at that point, but I know that he's done something to her. And my father goes into this whole explanation of how he, how they got into a fight. He, she came downstairs. She threw credit cards at him. She threw her purse at him, which is what that sound was that was hitting the wall it was a purse. Um, and she stormed out of the house with no coat on in the dead of winter, New Year's Eve, 1989, walks down our driveway, snowy driveway, and gets into a car that was waiting for her and leaves. Leaves her two children. That's it. <laughs> and I'm like, that's just, that's just bullshit. And I said to myself, I'm like, I know this man is lying and uh, I'm going to get him. And I'm going to get to the bottom of this because my mother would never leave me. And my father goes into this whole diatribe of how we're not going to call the police. We're not going to call the FBI. And when he said the FBI, I was like, cause my grandmother had come in by this time and he's explaining mm -hmm. everything that's happening. And I said, Oh no, no. Like the FBI. And I'm, you know, I'm 11 years old, almost 12 years old this time. And I'm thinking to myself, well, uh, this is Mansfield Ohio. This is a small town. I don't necessarily believe that this is a hotbed of FBI activity. Exactly. <laughs> and my father, uh, you know, my grandmother and everything. So my, my, you know, he's like, well, we're not going to call anybody. We're not going to do this. We're just going to wait for her to get back. And I'm just thinking to myself, that's just, it's just not a, not going to happen. And so my father leaves and my grandmother is re, you know, reiterating what my father said, not calling anyone or whatever. And I'm just like, yeah, whatever. So I grabbed my mom had just purchased a portable phone. I grabbed the portable phone and I go upstairs and I had hidden all my mother's friends' phone numbers. I wrote them all down on a piece of paper and I hid them inside a little stuffed Garfield that I had in my room. I grab that list of phone numbers. I go into the bathroom. I lock the door and I start calling everyone. And I started telling them what happened. And I said, you need to call the police. So I can't call the police, <laughs> but you can call the police. And a couple hours later, two officers show up in a black and white uniform officers. And my grandmother is just beside herself yelling at me for calling the police. And I was like, I didn't call the police. I didn't do that, which I technically did not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you did not so make I'm that not lying. I'm not lying. <laughs> and I, and she's hovering over me the whole time. And I'm trying to like break away to talk to the, to the police officers. And I don't get really a chance. I just say to one, I said, I don't trust my father as far as I could throw him, which is what my mother used to say about my father all the time. So I repeated that to him. And nothing happened. And they, you know, they left and they said, okay. And I called my mother's friends the next day and I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, we fired him, filed a missing persons report. I was like, it's not, it's not a missing person. Like something has happened to her. Like it's beyond a missing persons report. Like this is like. You knew. I knew 
and I said, you know, because this day has gone by and, and my father's stories and it's just, it's ridiculous. And so this is New Year's Day. And what happens is, is this, this detective named David Messmore shows up at the house. And Dave says, uh, he charms his way into the house with my grandmother. My grandmother's just so angry. And I'm like, come on in. And my grandmother leaves to go call my, my father. She's screaming. You know, my son's going to see you, blah, blah, blah. You have no right to be here. And I, as soon as my grandmother leaves, I grab him and I pull him aside and I say, I want to talk to you. Give me, give me your card. I go to school tomorrow. And he gives me his card. My grandmother comes back and he's like looking around and stuff. And he just kind of asks a couple of questions. Like, okay, I'll leave, you know. So the next day I, I get picked up to go to school because normally, normally my mother would take me, but one of her friends took me. And uh, obviously she wasn't there and i go to school and i go to the principal's office i give them the business card and i say you need to call the mansfield police department call this guy i want to talk to him get him down here so dave messmore comes down to my school and i for two three four hours i lay out the entirety of my parents relationship from start to finish and I was a kid that was raised in a household where education was of the utmost importance you know i was the kid who would get you know summer would be here kids are out of school i get to play with my friends for a week and then i go back into like <laughs> taking more classes like science classes math classes mm -hmm. going and i also enjoyed it too mind you my parents like were very academic they both went to penn uh you know okay. education was a really high value place upon education i you know i was the last kid on my friend group to get a nintendo and I, I and even though i had a very normal childhood like things that they were creative art music those were things that you know intellect those were things that were placed really high uh, higher in value than watching something on television you know mm -hmm. absolutely and it was so I had this sort of inclination to just, or this proclivity to just give way too many details <laughs> because I had just memorized them all from, I was conceived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to, this is what happened last night. Of course. But I give my father, or I give uh, this detective, David Messmore, the whole gamut. I tell him about Sherry, who's the girlfriend, the ring, the interaction with my mother, the years of his history of anger and violence mm -hmm. towards me and my mother, the things that he did. And I just paint this whole picture. And I say to him, look, and he's kind of like stunned that I have this like photographic memory. And I say, look, I'm going to go home tonight while my grandmother is dealing with my sister because my mother and father had adopted a, uh, a little girl from Taiwan six months previous to her going missing. Mm. And I said, well, my grandmother's downstairs dealing with her and making dinner. I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to start pulling out the bookshelves and looking behind them in our crawl space to see if I can find my mother's body. Or I'm going to, also, I'm going to like look for her purse because I know that she would never leave the house without this one purse. So if I find it, then I know something is, something else is up. And, you know, I just start going through all these plans and he's looking at me like I'm crazy. But ultimately, that's how this, you know, you, you start pulling the ball of twine. Mm -hmm. And that's what started happening. And I think back to, as an adult, I think back to it now. And how lucky I was to be able to go because I wouldn't have been able to talk to the detective any other way than if I had had a safe place in school. Hmm. And 
how I was able to get, get the cooperation of my team. I think that I don't think there was any choice. Like I was on a mission. They knew I was driven and I was like, I'm not going to class. I don't, yeah. I don't, I, I do not give a fuck mm-hmm. about any of this. Like I love learning. I don't care about any of this. I'm going to find out what happened to my mother. So being able to talk to the police in that way, I mean, was of massive, a massive importance to this case. And I, over the next three weeks with this detective, put together the pieces and I was doing things like observing. I mean, every time my father would come home, I was monitoring his every, I didn't let him out of my sight Hmm. also because I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to be out of his sight where I could be surprised. I wanted to know where he was at all times while I'm looking for clues, <laughs> while I'm snooping around. Mm-hmm being this nosy little kid. And I would, um, I would notice things and I would just take mental notes. Like he, he came home one time and, he, and I looked at his hands and he had scratches all over his hands. And I was like, that's really odd. My father had really well manicured hands. All he ever talked about was how well manicured his hands were. And that's hmm. something you know, even to this day. Hmm. And I, there were certain things that I was just like, you know, they were just really bizarre behavior. So uh, for example, I was playing a video game and it was a fighting game on the Nintendo. And my father got angry because or not even angry. He was just upset because it was a violent video game I was playing. And I tried to tell him, or, or, or first of all, my father was someone who had a proclivity for violence. He loved watching violent movies like war movies. And when I would cover my face or be scared of, uh, watching these movies, he would call me all kinds of drugs or little faggot, pussy, this, that, and the other. Hmm. You know, he would just, he, you know, he would, he would constantly tell me growing up how my mother was going to turn me into a faggot and all this and a little, like, I just really, like my father was really verbally and, and physically abusive. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg, but yes. And I just remember how bizarre it was that I'm playing a fighting video game, which is like macho. And he was just so disturbed by it. He's like, I never would have gotten this game for you had I known there was any violence. I was like, like he wanted to maintain are you, control. Are we, but, but well, I don't know if, I, I don't know if he was trying to maintain control, but I think that he was, but he had, he had flipped. And my father had gone from this person who was a really nasty type person to now being this really sweet and compassionate. It was a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Hmm. so he was oh i just i didn't like i would never have bought this for you this is this is a really bad this is really bad for you and i'm thinking like Hmm. who are you who are you and he 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 was operating with this level of of oh and we're gonna make it as a family and all and i'm like who are you what are you talking about because two weeks ago you were telling me how i was going to be out on the street destitute never go to college. You were going to ruin my life, make sure that I grew up in poverty. And now all of a sudden we're going to have this happy life without my mother. I'm like, you're out of your mind. And there was a time when he took me, the, the, the way that all this sort of started breaking is I, I, I kept going to school, kept calling mm-hmm. the police, talking to Dave Messmore, whether he'd come down to see me or I talked to him on the phone. I, I'd be giving him every uh, updates every single day about my father. And it wasn't until the middle of 
January 1990. My father, he was home and he said, hey, come with me to the office. I'm going to go grab paperwork. And and I'm just like, well, yeah, I'm coming with you because I want to observe him, right? Right. And we go to the office, we grab this paperwork, and then we stop at a gas station on the way back. And my father goes into the gas station. I'm just watching him. And I start rummaging through his car while I can see him through the glass of the gas station. I'm rummaging through the car. I open up the center console in his truck. And I find two photographs together. One is of a house that I've never seen before. Hmm. And the second one is of his girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, with her two children, sitting in front of a fireplace that's wrapped in plastic. And right then I knew. I was like, this is a new house. And I don't Hmm. know where this is. And she's connected to it. So the next day I go to school. I tell Dave Messmore about that. And then I don't hear from him for a couple of days. This is around January 20th, 1990. And what is happening at this time is for the last couple of weeks prior, my father's attorney, his divorce attorney, mm-hmm. is coming over every single night meeting with my father. And they're having more and more meetings. And, and there's signs that are being placed outside the house telling police not to come they're not going to comment for any any news media or anything and you know dave messmore keeps coming to my house to try to talk to my father to interview him about what happened and so i see dave at the door interacting with my father's attorney and i'm just like pretending that like we don't know each other we're both pretending we don't know each other it was great and but i'm just like he's gonna get it like we're gonna get this this and I, I look, uh, I, I mean, my father's just becoming more and more stressed. And so again, this is like January 20th, 21st. And my father says to me, he goes, you know, Collier, I've, um, it's, I know it's been really hard with mommy leaving us and hmm. the family in such disarray. I know it's been really hard on you. I think we should take a father and son trip. I have a medical conference coming up in Florida. I think we should do a father and son trip. It'll be really good for us bonding. And I knew right there that that moment, I wasn't coming back from Florida. Sounds a little fishy. At this point, had they launched a full investigation against your father or were you just gathering the information? Well, no, they were investigating. That's why they kept coming to the house to try to talk to him. That's why he had his lawyer engaged. And, you know, he... uh, you know, so they're they're taking everything I'm telling them and they're building this case. Mm-hmm. About, you know, uh, unbeknownst to me, but that's what they're doing. Because I'm building the case for myself. You are. Like mm-hmm. I'm putting all these things together, right? And um, I t- I go to school the next day. I call Dave Messmore and I said he, because every year my family would go to these medical conferences in Florida. They were in Clearwater Beach, Florida, but they were at the same time every year. They were during spring break when it's easy for families to get away mm-hmm. and the kids are off school and we can make a nice trip and go to Bush gardens, yada, yada. It'll be a fun trip. They're not in the middle of January, <laughs> literally a few weeks after Christmas break. <laughs> They're just not. <laughs> and I just knew, I knew that I wasn't coming back alive. And, uh, he, yeah, I told Dave my concern and Dave also echoed like, yeah, he, he, he's not coming back. Don't go. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm essentially the, I'm essentially quite possibly the only witness to a murder. And, um, on the morning of January 24th, 1990, I wake up to two people from children's services that says you have 20 minutes to pack a bag and we're getting out of here. And I asked if I could take my dog. They said, no, no, we'll come back and get your dog. I never saw my dog again. Oh. And uh, I packed my stuff for my sister and I, and I never really saw my house again. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we left. And as I was coming down the stairs, um, the entire place was filled with men and women in white lab coats, all kinds of contraptions, cop cars all over the driveway. Um, they were serving a search warrant looking for my mother's body. Okay. And so had they officially said something to you when you were leaving or did you just know? I mean, you seem to I have mean, the wherewithal. I think pretty much at the point where there's my grandmother's screaming and they're they've got they're serving search warrants and there's the whole the whole police department is I pretty okay. much knew what was going on. Okay. Well, yeah, well, I, I mean obviously cuz I had a feeling it was all coming down anyways based upon like the the fact that my father was trying to take me out of town, which I knew that like he's going to kill me. Like he's going to kill me. Just much like you, you know when the footsteps came down the hallway and I said don't look up. It's it's you know, I, I think probably to this day, my father regrets not killing me then because it would have been really easy to explain away. Yes, yeah, she left with a kid in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? That's a common thing that happens, at least in these domestic abuse situations with a missing person. So I think that that was his way of, okay, well, uh, something happened. Oh, he drowned in the Gulf of Mexico. He couldn't swim. You know? Right. Anything. Uh, anything. And I think that, oh, he had an asthma attack because I was, I was heavily asthmatic at the mm. time. And um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I knew, I knew that it was coming down. Um, and when it, when they arrived right at the house, I was like, okay, this is it. And I, it's hard to explain, but you sort of know that like it, that you're, you've, you know, you, I crossed the Rubicon long right. before that by, by initiating contact with the police and telling them everything. Right. Um, so I knew that I was already at this place. <laughs> of yeah shit's gotten real but it's a whole other level when it actually when you actually see it happening you actually see what you've done and the seeds that you've planted actually coming to fruition like either way i'm going to come out of this they're going to find my mother or they're going to find out what happened to her and you have this just you have it's hard to explain but if you haven't been there but it is and hopefully you haven't actually if you're listening to this program hopefully you have no idea what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. um but I think that uh, you just begin to – it begins to take hold that, like, life is never going to be the right. same, right? Now, I find, and... I find your level of maturity very interesting, oh. you know, when, you're, when you heard these noises in the middle of the night and you, what your father said to you the next morning, and you knew right away something's wrong, my mom's dead. And then you took the initiative to search for evidence. That next morning, the first thing you did was you ran to your parents' bedroom, you pulled the covers back, you're looking for something. Do you think that that stemmed from living in a house that was heavily violent or do you think that you were just a child that was precocious and aware and understood the way unfortunate scenarios play out i think it's a little bit of both and you know i know that true crime is very popular right now and you could probably have people that that watch it that would go oh yeah that'd be what i do but like this is 1990 (laughs) you know this is not a prevalent thing i'm not like the dateline is not a huge thing like we're not and I'm not exposed to that to begin with. So yeah, I think I think there's a certain level of just, yes, I was a precocious kid. Yes, I was a bit annoying. I was very curious about the world and I was, you know, into just being a total, you know, nerd or wonk, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I was also driven to like what happened to my mother. But but also, yeah, I mean, I think when you grow up in a situation where 
fight or flight is like a fight, flight, or fawn is a standard method of operation for daily mm -hmm. survival. Of course, your head goes there. And of course, you're like, okay, and you, you're, you're compartmentalizing, right? You're sort of like, okay, I'm going to figure out this piece. I heard this, so I'm going to figure out this piece. And I hear this, I'm going to figure out this piece and this piece and this piece, you know? And that stems from, you know, this still sends into my adult life too, because like, I like to be very scheduled. I like to like know when things are. And it's, and I think that it, as I get older and I talk to more people and I work with, you know, people as coaching clients and things of that nature, I, I definitely discover that, that part of trauma response is maintaining a, like a schedule, mm -hmm. a, a, some sort of order to your right. world because you lived in such chaos for so long and such uncertainty like the ground you know the ground is always shifting beneath your feet right and at a certain point you just learn how to you just learn how to skate right right you learn how to move and you you want as many things to be planted around you in case you have to move quickly exit <laughs> so strategy like, okay yeah you're always looking like three right. steps ahead to everything right. and it's just sort of and it can be exhausting. It's definitely exhausting it for sounds, sure. It sounds and exhausting. It's, and, it, and it is it's exhausting to be that when you're a child. But I was so relentless mm -hmm. in finding out what happened to my mother that it ultimately was, I mean, I mean, does it have a happy ending? Not really. But I ultimately, I ultimately feel like that it was necessary for me to be in that mode because I was in survival mode. And mm -hmm. I think that would have been the only way to comprehend what was going on. Right. And I look back at it. It was interesting. I was doing a, I was doing like a guest lecture thing, like a couple of months ago at the fashion Institute here in LA. And I was saying how you don't realize when things are in front of you, how important they are mm. until you get older. Because you you ultimately have to look yourself in the mirror, right? So I think for me, had I just chosen the easy route, which would have been to accept my father's explanation, just kind of roll with the punches and just go with it, how vastly different my life would be. Mm -hmm. And how vastly different the world around my father would have been. Because I firmly believe that my father, had he gotten away with this, which he almost did, he would have done it again. Yeah. Um, because he's a psychopath and because he's a narcissist and because the people like that, they're almost like uh, an incubus, if you will, or a succubus. Absolutely. And they have to, they have to do certain things to feed their ego, to feed the monster. And it's just, it's much greater than just, an overwhelming desire to be successful or things like that. It's like a full on like blood lust, if you will. Right. And I think that, you know, and the, the interesting way how my father over the years, I mean, just to sort of tie up the story and I, I wish I, you know, I ended up finding out the, the following day I, that night, you know, you talk about breathing underwater. I had the worst asthma attack of my life. So this mm -hmm. is the night of January 24th. And I couldn't breathe. And since I left my house, I didn't have any of my like stuff, oh, goodness. you know? So uh, I somehow survived through the night. So the morning of January 25th, 1990, I get taken to the hospital. They, they do give me a breathing treatment. It's a friend of the family who's a cardiologist. Mm. He gives me this breathing treatment. I get stabilized. I can breathe. And then that's when they tell me 
Lieutenant Messmore, call your Lieutenant Messmore found your mother. Mm. There's like this eternal pause. And then they said, mm. and she was dead. And the first thing out of my mouth was that bastard. And I, I'd already known <laughs> that my life was over as I knew it. Right. But, no, but that confirmation, but that's like a confirmation, right? So you mm. definitely know like, Oh, okay. And it's a really hard thing to explain when, or to articulate rather, when you are, there's part relief because you know, you're not crazy mm. that what you believed was true and your what you believed in your heart was true. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, there's an overwhelming, overwhelming amount of sadness and sorrow that just cascades down upon you in those moments. And you're just like, uh, it's so, like I said, it's so hard to articulate because you have this relief and this, this simultaneous sorrow. And you just are like, I don't know what's next because everything that I've ever thought about my life is now completely off the table. Exactly. And it was your time to grieve your loss, this overwhelming, irreplaceable, traumatic loss. Sure. Except there really wasn't a lot of time to grieve. Tell me why. Well, because I am the chief witness for the prosecution. So I end up within a couple of days uh, testifying at the grand jury to secure my mother's and my father's indictment. Mm. Then my mother's sister comes to town and uh, she's my godmother and we have like a makeshift, you know, memorial service there for the community. And it's super weird. And then she tells me that their family wants nothing to do with me because I look like my father. Oh, and my father's side of the family wants nothing to do with me because I've got my father arrested for murdering my mother. So I go into custody of the state, mm. into the foster care system with no family support whatsoever. I get basically thrown to the wolves. Mm-hmm. And that's how I grew up for the next year. So while facing the fact that my father has murdered my mother, grieving that, now I've lost my house, my dog, my whole way of life, my mother, my father, my, my family wants nothing to do with me. Mm. And now I'm living with strangers who are not great. <laughs> right. No support system, which is no what system, one yeah. would rely on in a situation like this. Yeah. And I had a little bit of, I had, I had, I had definitely formed a bond with Dave Messmore, the detective, mm-hmm. but he's also the detective in the case. And I can't like hang out with him. Right. You know, I eventually, when everything was over, I wanted to be adopted by him and I would spend time with him and his family which ultimately they, the, uh, the adoption of me was rejected by the courts going to them, which is where I really wanted to go. And I went to strangers that I didn't know. Now, ultimately that worked out well for me um, when I was finally adopted when I was 13. And I have a great relationship with my adopted family. But I definitely, uh, it, was t- it was tough to say the least to not have any real support system at all. And to sort of have to dig deep inside yourself at a now 12 years old to testify in court for two days against the biggest monster you've ever encountered in your life. Somebody who you were afraid of growing up, who terrified you. Right. And also there's a flip side too, because when you're in what I would say that was the nadir of my life, right? 
and I, it's it's interesting because you you're faced with this this uh, another layer of layer of a dilemma, mm -hmm. which is the fact that my father has a high powered legal team, right? And this is the word of a 12 year old child and granted there's evidence and things like that, but I don't know what the evidence is. Okay. So they, they didn't share with you where they found your mother's body. No, no, they, no, they did. They found it in the house. They found my mother's body in the house that I found the photographs of. Okay. Okay. Which he had purchased with his mistress who was in the photographs that I had in the photograph that I had found in his truck. She had forged my mother's uh, initial with her name. She said she was married to my father. My father's, my mother's name was Noreen Schmid Boyle. And she mm -hmm. wrote N period Sherry Boyle, but she wasn't married to my father. Talking about grief and talking about mourning your loss and how you didn't have enough time really in the days following your learning that your mother was murdered at the hands of your father. You had already known this, but the confirmation occurred. At what point, and then of course the loss of your entire family, because one side of the family doesn't want to see you because of your genetic makeup and the other side of your family wants nothing to do with you because you put your dad behind bars. Yeah. At, at what point were you able to finally have that moment where you could grieve the loss? Because I've learned, and I think Whitney can attest to this as well, that when you actually get that time that very special human emotion that we all have when you when you get that moment to grieve the loss and come to whatever terms you can come to them that it begins your healing journey for most not for all but for most i think that um i would say ultimately mm -hmm. the time when it all sort of hit me 27 years later it was when I had finished making my film The Murder in Mansfield and I was in my adopted parents house and um, you know at the time it was like the end of a week I was probably half in the bag I was like I just remember collapsing in their kitchen and just sobbing and I was mm just overwhelmed with everything. Right. And I think it had really, it really, you know, my whole, my whole life was, you know, this horrible thing happens. My father goes to prison. Then I'm left to pick up the pieces of this small, because I stayed in the small town that I, that all this happened. So I grew up there. So I was constantly picking up the pieces ever since. And it went from me, it, it, everywhere I would go, people would recognize me. So I was known as like the kid whose dad murdered his mom. That's the doctor's son. His mother was murdered. This, that. So I never knew if people actually like liked me for me or they liked me for the fact that I have this, this story or they saw me on television. Like it's almost like growing up as a child actor, right? Not as fun, but it's um and not as pretend but for all the you wrong have, reasons yeah right? for all the wrong reasons right so you grow up and you know the trial was televised and in the courtroom and he would see me on the nightly news and it was a big thing right so i think that i never 
my processing everything and grieving was to turn it into some sort of action. I was like, okay, I'm going to get out of this small town. And no offense to where I grew up, because I love where I grew up, but it was full of really bad memories in a lot of ways. And I didn't want to be known as that person. I didn't want my history of what happened to me to lead me into a room anymore. I wanted to, and I, and I literally had said to myself, I want to go to a place where no one, it's the opposite of cheers. I want to go to a place where no one knows, knows my, my name, name. <laughs> where no one knows my name. No one has any clue who I am. And that I know that if somebody actually likes me and is interested in being my friend or wants to be my lover or your girlfriend, whatever, that they actually, they, they like me or they appreciate the things that I can do and my abilities and my talents because they like them for me, not because I have this crazy story. So I literally, with a couple thousand bucks in my pocket, moved to Los Angeles when I was 20, 20, almost 21. Hmm. I dropped out of music school. I went to music school for like two and a half years. I dropped out of music school and I moved to LA. And I was like, I'm going to figure out a way to tell this story. And I said, look, I'm either going to, it was thinking to myself, I'll either become a rock star, become famous and uh, tell my story with the, share my story with the world and help a bunch of people, mm-hmm. or I'll become a filmmaker, share my story with the world and help a bunch of people. Exactly. Like, it'll either, it'll be something involved in art. And so I ended up becoming a filmmaker. So I learned everything about the nuances of becoming a filmmaker. And that's how I was able to tell my story. And I, and I was able to enlist someone who was, just unbelievably talented and, and revered as a filmmaker, Robert Koppel. He's won two Academy Awards for documentaries. My dear friend, John Morrissey, who made one of my favorite films of all time, uh, American History X. He was my co-executive producer on it. So it came together. And I just remember doing the, I was traveling around doing press and I traveled all around the world with the film. I was in like 60 film festivals and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. But every you talk about like how processing my grief, right? Right. Every new stop that I would go, whether I was in Amsterdam or North Carolina or Toronto or Australia, like I would have these little moments of like, oh yeah, here I am, and like my mom is a part of this, and I'm bringing her to these parts of the world with me, and I'm actually traveling with her. But it wasn't until I did like a hometown screening in Mansfield. Mm-hmm. And I did it in the same theater that my mother used to volunteer at and like make little soda pops with all that my friends would drink and they were called. I wasn't allowed to have soda as a kid, but they would they would get sodas <laughs> with like it was called a suicide. It was like Mountain Dew, Coke, Dr. Pepper, blah, 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 like all these things. Right. And it was just gross. And um, I was standing on that stage and I just just got up like right after the film, just started riffing. And I just talked about how life is circadian. Mm-hmm. And I had found my mother's, a prayer card from my mother's funeral that I was sent years later mm. as they had a proper funeral for her in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, which I could not attend. And it really affected me. And I found that prayer card, which I hadn't seen in 10 years that morning in my journal as I was writing. And I said to the audience, I realized that at that moment, in that place, that my mother used to take me to, to go see musicals and plays and she volunteered there. And it was a big part of our lives. But that was the moment that I was burying her. Mm. And it makes sense. You know, this kind of you rewriting your legacy for her, 
you mentioned this earlier, which I thought was beautiful. In many ways, you became her protector. And we yeah. like to really focus on that moment where even though you had for years gone through this and shared your story and, and we're kind of going through the steps of life and doing well as a human being, but it, in one moment, you realized what had happened and you accepted it. And then your mother's presence was still there. And you recognized you were now kind of rewriting your legacy, you know, not remembering her as a victim, but as a hero. Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing, though, too, is that I, before the film came out, no one knew my story. <laughs> so I, yeah, there was a Forensic Files episode made about it, but like I never talked to anyone. So all of my Hollywood like colleagues and peers, only a few knew, and they knew very small details. Collier's from Ohio. He's adopted. His father killed his mom. And when he was a kid and he testified, like that was like the most that anyone ever knew. They didn't know what my real name was, or they didn't know, they didn't know anything about any of it. And I just remember the film coming out and just people reaching out to me. This is like 2020, it's a pandemic. They're going, what? Like, I never knew this about you. People still to this day that I've had, that I've shot whole documentaries for. Somebody reached out to me a couple months ago and said, um, so I just saw a link to an interview you did on Facebook and I had no idea you made a move. Like you, like, how did I not know this? And I was like, I don't talk about it because that was, that was part of something that I wanted to share when I wanted to share it. You know, I, I realized how fortunate I was to be able to do that and to be able to do it with the caliber of people that I did it with and to be able to offer that story up. Because for me, you know, I think that you, you know, you said at the top of the program, you want to know like who we're trying to resonate with or, or, or share our trauma so other people can benefit. It's like, I always wanted to tell the story to first honor my mother's legacy. The second thing is, is that I wanted to share it to heal myself so I can move on and process everything. But then ultimately, I wanted to speak to that same kid who's 12 years old in the darkest the nadir of his life, staring into the abyss and nothing stares back at you, right? As they say. And you find your character, you find out who you are, like what you're made of. And I wanted to speak to that kid because I wanted to say, hey man, it's going to be okay. Or to that girl, like whoever that is, like you're going to make it, you're going to be okay. I'm living proof. The crazy thing is, is that traveling around the film is where I thought I'd just maybe speak to one person. It spoke to tens of thousands of people. And it's like, I have a podcast now moving past murder. I have a platform. I'm you know, on TikTok and things of that nature. So, and you know, through my website and people discover me, like I said, I do coaching and I do speaking and the, the amount of impact that I've been able to have. And somebody said to me once, they said, you know, you only see the people who you only see the people that just respond to you. The people who you're really impacting are the people that don't say a word, that just know that you're out there Absolutely. and that gives them hope. And I was like, whoa, that was so profound to me because I also find inspiration in other people. I also grew up that same way trying to find that. And it wasn't as readily available as it is now. I was always looking for those things. I was always seeking that out. Like, am I going to be okay? Let me figure out what this is. Let me, how am I going to navigate my life? Right. And nowadays, like to be able to share that with people is just extraordinary. It's just such a gift to be able to do. 
I agree with you. And that's why we explore this with people like you. And I think that aside from just saying, okay, we went through this trauma, you know, we experienced abuse in the house and we experienced um, double suicide and we experienced these very traumatic scenarios that like we say, it's now our cross to bear. It's, it's now something that we carry with us. It doesn't define us, however. And so I think that's why we are so motivated by your story because you sharing, you creating your film years after this happened was kind of your declaration that you were going to be okay. It was your declaration that you were going to not just be okay, but you were going to bring in hope and guidance for others who have gone through other unspeakable scenarios. Because I know that you do so eloquently in sharing your story and saying, you know, well, my father killed my mother, but I am sure that that phrasing is not something that's ever easily spoken by you. And I mean, and it's, and it's not normal and you are so poised and clear in your message to the world that I think it speaks on ultimately who your mother was in raising you. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's also, I, I say this all the time. It's not what you've been through that defines you. It's what you choose to do with it that does. And that's been my whole message. Like you can take this, you can harness this, this for good. And you don't have to let these circumstances define you, but what you do with it, that is what defines you. That's wonderful. Well, I think that you have learned, as we have all, in moments of insane insanity and trauma to breathe underwater, embrace the chaos, figure it out, search for evidence, find those clues. And I think that it's very special. Well, thank you. So we are so happy to have Collier here today. You can find him on his website, collierlandry.com. He has an amazing podcast that we'll add links to. He's a motivational speaker. He's a filmmaker. He has used his trauma to help others. And I think that his journey and his continued catharsis in this area is one where we can find and many golden nuggets. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me.